This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Batya's Kitchen, and we thank them for their support. This is an apt Parsha for fundraising week at Torch at GiveTorch.org because Parsha's Truma begins with a fundraising drive. Moshe is instructed to seek donors of various different raw materials, gold, silver, copper, three different types of wool, linen, goat hair, reddened goat skin, hide from a mysterious unicorn-like animal called a tachash, wood, various oils and spices, and various precious stones, 13 different items, Rashi tells us. And these materials are going to be fashioned into a mishkan, into a tabernacle, and its various vessels and vestments. This mishkan, this tabernacle, it's a precursor of the permanent temple in Jerusalem, and this will serve as the dwelling place for God amongst his people. We read about the ark. It's a series of nested boxes, the gold box, and into the gold box there's the wooden box, and then there is a second gold box in which the tablets and the shards of the broken tablets were placed, and the ark is symbolic of the Torah scholar, and just as with respect to the ark, the wood is completely covered both inside and out by gold, so too a Torah scholar has to be gold inside and outside, has to bear refined character both inside and outside. Just as the ark, it has the luchos, the tablets, both the ones that were shattered, the shards of the first tablets, and the ones that endured, the ark had both of them inside of it. So too, a Torah scholar, every Torah scholar has parts of their life and their story that are shards, that were failures. And that too gets placed in the ark. That too is part of the ultimate legacy. Now, the ark was wreathed by a golden crown, and on top it was sealed by a cover upon which there were gold-hewn cherubs with arched wings, and on either side they had little rings in which two gold-plated wooden poles were placed for transport. And we read about the table and what it symbolized We're told it symbolized wealth and the monarchy. It too was made out of gold. It too was adorned with a golden crown. It too had poles. And atop the table, the shulchan, were dishes in which the showbreads were baked and stored each week. And we read the menorah. The menorah also symbolizes Torah, but a different, maybe different angle or different aspect of Torah than the ark. And we've spoken about this in the past. The menorah was a candelabra that was hewn from a single block of gold, and it consisted of seven intricately embellished branches. And we talked about this last year, how the menorah was hard for Moshe to visualize, to picture. They might have to show him a menorah of fire and read about the various covers of the Mishkan. And the Parsha concludes with the dimensions and with the makeup of the Mishkan's courtyard. But it starts off with a fundraising drive. And this drive is going to raise all the materials needed for the Mishkan. And our parish read about the beginning of what needs to be built. 
And that continues into next week's Parsha. Now, just a, a brief note about the Torch fundraiser. We are in the final couple of days of the Torch fundraiser, the only annual Torch fundraiser at givetorch.org. Last year, the campaign saw 758 donors. As of right now, as of this recording on Wednesday afternoon, we have already eclipsed that number. Now, when we started, we had hoped maybe to get to a 1,000 donors. Maybe that seems a bit out of reach right now. But can we eclipse 800 or maybe 850 or maybe even 900 donors before the end of the week? Maybe. That's up to you. If you have not yet made a contribution, make a contribution of any size. But every contribution adds another donor and gives us another vote of confidence, more encouragement to continue the great work here of Torch. And if that's too much, if it's too much even to make a donation of any size, do me this favor. Just visit the page. Come check up on us at givetorch.org. But this is this is the last part of the podcast of 2023 that we're going to mention it. Next week, the fundraiser is going to be, please God, concluded. And that's it. That's all you hear about it until, please God, in 2024. But now I want to focus on one particular aspect of what was raised in the drive, in the fundraising drive at the beginning of our parsha, And that is the final two items of this list. Avne Shoham, the Shoham stones, the Avne Miluim, and the Miluim stones, la ephod vela choshen, for the ephod, which is the apron-like garment of the high priest, and the choshen, that is the breastplate of the high priest. There are two types of stones that need to be raised from the nation. One is called Shoham stones, and one is called Miluim stones. And the Shoham stones are for the ephod, that's the apron-like garment that has those two suspenders that go up to the shoulders, and on each shoulder there is a Shoham stone. And six of the names of the sons of Jacob, of the tribes, are on one side, are etched into one side, and the other six are etched onto the stone on the other side. That's the Shoham stones. And then there are the 12 Miluim stones that go into the Choshen, into the breastplate upon the chest of the Kohen Gadol, on the chest of the high priest. On those stones as well, we have etched the names of the tribes of the Jewish people. 12 stones, one for every son of Jacob. In addition, the Talmud tells us the words Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Shifte, Yeshurun, the tribes of Yeshurun, they too were etched upon these stones in the Choshen, the Meluim stones on the breastplate of the high priest. Now, these stones have some interesting stories associated with them. For one, we're told that the Nesim, the princes of the Jewish people, they were the ones who contributed to these stones. Now, when that is told in the Torah, the word for the princes, the Nesim, is spelled missing a letter. And Rashi tells us that they're being punished, they're being criticized, because they tarried in contributing. Why? Because the princes were overseeing the fundraising drive. And they thought that the nation wouldn't be able to donate all these incredible and expensive materials needed for the Mishkan. And they said, 
whatever is not covered by the populace, by the general populace, we'll cover. We'll cover the rest. But the people, the nation, overwhelmed the fundraising drive. I wonder what that was like. And there had to be a call that was issued throughout the camp to halt donations. And all that was left were these stones. No one brought these stones, the 12 Miluim stones and the two Shoham stones. And the princes, they brought these stones. But because they tarried, they delayed, they dithered and did not contribute right away, they are slightly criticized by the Torah and a letter is deducted from their name. Now, where did these princes get these stones from? You imagine that not everyone had these precious stones in the desert. You know, gold, we know that they cleaned house in Egypt, gold and silver and various other materials. Rashi tells us also that the wood was brought down by Jacob when he came to Egypt and it was planted there. And when they left, they took it with them. But where did they get the stones from? So the Talmud tells us, the book of Yoma on page 75a, it quotes a verse, 36.3, that describes the various contributions to the tabernacle. And it uses terminology that seems to evoke the manna. And the Talmud tells us that included with the manna that came every day were other things. And part of the other things that came with the manna were these stones, these precious stones. And therefore, the princes, they received in their manna deposit some of these stones and then contributed towards the tabernacle fundraising effort. Now, it's interesting. The nation did not contribute these stones. And only the princes did. It seems clear that not everyone got the same goodies, the same goodie bag with their manna. In fact, it's implied that the only people that received these stones together with the manna were the princes. And therefore, they were the only ones who were able to give these stones towards the Mishkan effort. There was a very nice piece, just as a quick aside. In the Ardidalyahu, where he talks about how the princes really wanted to bring these stones, and only they who truly desired to contribute these stones to the tabernacle fundraising efforts, only they were granted these stones with their manna. And therefore, only the princes who so wholeheartedly desired to bring these stones, only they merited to have them come with their manna packages in the morning, which is, I think, a nice idea. That may be portable to other areas of life that the Almighty will deposit to you the things that you truly, truly desire to give back to Him. Very interesting. That's another important element of these stones. And finally, there's a very dramatic story in the Talmud. We've mentioned this in the past, many years ago. But it's one of those very memorable stories. So you may recall it, even though it was quite a while back. 
The Talmud is talking about something completely unrelated. It's talking about the requirements to honor your parents. Of course, that's one of the Ten Commandments, to honor your parents. And the Talmud is talking about how far do you have to go? What are the limits to which you must go to honor your parents? And it brings a story about an idolater who lived in the city of Ashtalon, whose name was Dama Benesina. He was a gem dealer. And he had a stone that the sages needed. It was one of the stones of the ephod. It was one of the Avni Shoham. And his profit from this transaction was slated to be either 600,000 gold coins or 800,000 gold coins, different opinions in the Talmud. And when they came to visit him, the key to the safe in which he kept all the stones was underneath the pillow of daddy, of his dad. And he was sleeping, and he didn't want to wake his father up. And they went elsewhere, and they got the stone from another source, but he was willing to forfeit that much profit to not arouse, to not wake up his father, who was slumbering. And this is how far you have to go, says the Talmud, to honor your parents. And the aftermath of the story is also told, the next year, Dama Benesina discovered something very unusual amongst his livestock. One of his cows bore a red heifer. Now, a red heifer, of course, is a very valuable, precious commodity because it is a critical ingredient in the potion, in the concoction that can purify someone who became impure. So those same sages representing the nation, came to visit him. This time, the cow was not slumbering under daddy. And they said, we'll buy your cow. We'll buy your red heifer from you. And Dama Benesina, this idolater, he understood that he was given this great gift because of what he forfeited the previous year. And he says, I know I could ask for any sum in the world and you will pay it to me in exchange for my red heifer, but all I want is what I lost on last year's deal. Very interesting story. The prophet that would have gone to this gem dealer for this stone that was missing was either 600 or 800,000 gold coins. It kind of makes you wonder what the backstory there is, what happened. How did a stone go missing? How was it misplaced? Did it fall out? What exactly are the circumstances that led to a stone, one of these very important precious stones, to be missing? That, of course, is a great mystery, and the Talmud does not tell us that. But this story is also part of the story of these stones, the Avne Shoham, the Shoham stones, and the Avne Miluim, the Miluim stones. Now, I want to focus on a particular aspect of these stones. We know Shoham is a type of stone. And there were two Shoham stones, one on either shoulder of the high priest, on the suspender part of the ephod. Now, both Shoham stones were were the same, but the truth is there were three Shoham stones because there were the two Shoham stones on the shoulders of the high priest, 
And then there were 12 Miluim stones, and each one of them was different. There are 12 different types of stone. But one of those 12, the stone corresponding to the tribe of Joseph, was actually a Shoham stone. So it's a good trivia to know. How many Shoham stones were there? There were two Shoham stones for the Aphod, and there was one Shoham stone of the 12 for the Choshen, for the Avne Miluim. And this is all delineated in Etri's Parsha, chapter 28, verses 17 through 20. So Shoham is a type of stone, and in the aforementioned verses, in chapter 28, it goes through all the names of all these 12 stones that correspond to the 12 tribes. But here, collectively, they're called Avne Miluim. What does Miluim mean? And it's not so clear. You look at Rashi. Rashi gives us one answer, one opinion as to what miluim means. Miluim, it's because these miluim stones that they went in the breastplate of the high priest, there was a bracket. There was a hole. There was a void. And the avne miluim were put inside that void. They would fill the void. And therefore, the word miluim means to fill. There was a bracket that was empty. And that bracket was filled with these miluim stones, with these 12 respective stones. And that's why these 12 stones are collectively called the miluim stones. So Rashi here defines miluim stones as filler stones. Stones that fill the brackets in the breastplate. In the breastplate, there was a, a void a golden bracket. And that void was plugged with a stone. It was filled with a stone. The 12 voids were filled with 12 stones. And therefore, collectively, these 12 stones are called the Avne Miluim, the filler stones. Stones that fill the setting that would otherwise be vacant. These golden slots, each one of the stones fit in nicely and snugly into its respective slot. Now, Ramban, as he often does, he is not happy with Rashi's translation of this word. And he disagrees and he asks a battery of questions. And he notes that Rashi elsewhere says that these stones were submerged into the brackets, meaning that the depth of the stones matched the depth of the brackets meaning that they're only like 2D. The thickness of the stone was completely absorbed by the brackets that encased them. So they were flush, so to speak, with the golden void that they filled. And the Rabban's not happy with this definition for a variety of reasons. First of all, he says, well, right now we're just getting started. It's the beginning of the fundraising drive, and we don't know anything about what is actually we're going to use these materials for? And therefore, how can you call these stones filler stones before you know what exactly it is that they're supposed to fill? Question number one. Question number two is, you know, why is this exclusive to the Miluim stones? The Shoham stones also went inside brackets. So if Miluim stones means filler stones, stones that fill the brackets that are empty, if not for the stones, that term can equally be applied 
to the Shoham stones, because they too fill a void that would otherwise be empty. And the Rabban continues that this definition seems to conflict with the Talmud that uses the word miluim, or a variety of that word, to deduce that you cannot etch it with a scalpel. So we have these stones, and upon these stones, you have the names, the Shoham stones on the shoulders of the Kohen Gadol. On each one of those two stones were six names, six of the sons of Jacob. On the Miluim stones, upon the breastplate, were etched, each one individually, the name of one of the tribes. How do you etch those stones? You cannot use a scalpel. Why? So the Talmud tells us, because that would violate the word, which is a variant of the word, Miluim. Thus, the Ramban proves that the word Miluim is used in the context, in a different context, not to mean that it fills a hole, fills a void, but rather that it's not chipped away, it's not etched away with a scalpel. And then it goes to prove that the stones were not inlaid, they were not flush with a setting, they were, in fact, protruding. And even today, he says, if you know, you know, no one puts a stone that's completely surrounded by the setting. The stone, the stone is always protruding from the setting because you want to show off the beauty so it can be appreciated. So he doesn't like Rashi's interpretation of what miluim means. The Rashi says it's filler stones. Instead, he offers a different interpretation. The word malay means complete or full. And the definition of these miluim stones is that they must be full. They must be complete. They must be created in this shape. You cannot chisel it. You cannot hew it. You cannot hammer or quarry it out of a larger stone. If you needed a stone that was the specific measurements, you would take a bigger stone and chip away at it until it results in the measurement that you want. Not these Miluim stones. They cannot be chipped. They cannot be chiseled. They cannot be hewn. They have to be in their natural state. And then he adds, which I found to be very interesting, he says the power of precious stones is only when they are in their natural and complete state. And the Avne Milum that went on the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, they were the only ones that cannot be chipped or chiseled or hewn. The Shoham stones on the aphod, on the shoulders, they were etched. And they were thus not in their natural state. They were not complete. But the breastplate stones, the Avne Miluim, they were complete. And therefore, he quotes the Talmud, the only way to engrave, how do you engrave the names of the 12 tribes if you cannot chisel at it? It was only done with this magical Shamir worm that you showed it where to go, and it somehow managed to imprint the names without chiseling away at the stone. And thus he tells us that the only part of the garments of the high priest that has this requirement, that it cannot be chipped or chiseled, it must be complete, it's only the Miluim stones, but not the Shoham stones. So this is a second definition of what it means, Miluim stones, has to be complete stones, not chiseled, not broken, not 
carved in any way, natural. It cannot even be etched. And this is only by the Meluim stones of the breastplate, but not by the Shoham stones of the Aphod. That is the second opinion. There is a third opinion, a very clever one offered by Maharal. The word Malay or Miluim means complete, and he differentiates between the Avne Shoham and the Avne Miluim, and he says that the Aphod, it's a garment. It's a garment that has an adornment, but it's an apron-like garment. It happens to have an adornment. But it is fundamentally different than the chosh and the breastplate, which was solely an adornment. It had no other utility aside from being jewelry. And therefore, the avne miluim, the miluim stones that went on the breastplate, they were miluim stones. They were stones that completed Because if you have an imperfect adornment, you have no adornment at all. Whereas if you have an imperfect garment, you still have the utility of the garment. And this is why the stones of the breastplate are called miluim stones, completing stones, because they complete the adornment. The ephod, it's a garment. It's not an adornment. This reminds us of the legendary quip by one of the Salavechers. A pair of pants, trousers for our UK friends. If it has a stain, it's still pants. But a tie whose sole utility is for adornment, if a tie has a stain, it's not even a tie. It doesn't fulfill the requirements of an adornment when it is stained. So this is yet a third opinion as to what the word milu means. Rashi says it's filler stones, stones that fill the empty brackets in the breastplate of the high priest. Rabban says it's full stones, complete, unchipped, unhewn stones. And the Maharal says it's completing stones, stones that render the breastplate into an adornment. Where do you want to go with this? So I have a thesis about stones in general, and specifically the stones of the high priest. Whenever we hear about stones, perhaps there's also some symbolism that can be very relevant for us. You know, we haven't seen a high priest in our lifetime. We haven't seen a temple. The whole notion of a tabernacle is foreign to us. But there are, of course, lessons that we can learn even today. And one of the lessons, perhaps, is that stones, in general, they symbolize a lasting, enduring legacy. You know, today, I'm recording this on Wednesday. It's Rosh Chodesh. And on Rosh Chodesh, we read the Hallel. Included in that is Psalms 118. And this is one of the most beautiful verses Of course, you can't say that because all verses are equally beautiful. But a verse that's very striking to us, where King David, in an autobiographical sense, is telling us that he was a stone. And all the builders rejected this stone. They all disdained and abhorred this stone. But what happened? That stone was transformed into being the cornerstone 
of the Jewish people. Samuel, the prophet, is told, go to Jesse. One of his sons is going to replace Saul and will be the king of Israel. And Jesse lines up his seven sons, and all of them are not candidates. Do you have any more sons? Yeah, but he's not your guy. He's outside. He's ruddy. He likes to play in his harp. He's a shepherd. He's definitely not king material. The builders despised this stone. But ultimately, of course, David is forever king of Israel. He became the cornerstone of the people. So stones here symbolize, they represent the idea of a, of a legacy, a grand, enduring legacy. We've mentioned in the past, Rashi tells us that the Hebrew word for stone is evan. And that word is a mashup of av and ben, father and son. The legacy that a father perpetuates to his son. The legacy of what a person did in their lifetime that transcends their own life and gets transplanted in future generations. The enduring value that gets passed on from generation to generation is the stone. Of course, it's no surprise that atop a grave, we place a headstone that delineates a person's lifetime accomplishments. That's the monument that's placed upon a person's grave. Now, these stones, they have the names of the tribes of Israel etched upon them. These stones represent these 12 luminaries, the sons of Jacob and the founders of the tribes of the Jewish people. And these stones symbolize the great legacy that they created, that they built. The Talmud tells us that Joseph was almost booted from this fraternity. When his master's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, as we like to call her here on the Parsha podcast, courtesy of horse, my friend, Ezzy, who came up with that terminology, Joseph was about to capitulate. His master's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, was seducing him day after day. And he had reached a breaking point. And he was about to yield. He was about to succumb. And the Talmud, the book of Sotah, page 36b, tells us that he saw the visage of his father in the window. And Jacob, the hologram of Jacob, told Joseph, you should know you're now alone in Egypt, but your behavior and your choices are going to reverberate for eternity. In the future, this family is going to become a great nation. And we're going to have high priests. And the high priests are going to wear special garments that have stones on them. And upon the stones, right now, are destined to be the names of you and your brothers. If you go ahead with what you're about to do, your name will never be on those stones. Instead, you'll be the patron of harlots. Had Joseph gone ahead with that sin he would have forever been ineligible for his name to be etched into the stone of the aphode. And therefore, this visage of his father was warning him, you are on the cusp of losing your spiritual standing, imperiling 
your legacy, and that is going to be manifested by you not being present in this stone, your your name not being etched in the stone. Of course, Joseph resisted, and thus he maintained his eligibility for indeed having his name etched in said stones, in the Avne Shoham and Miluim. But in general, this is what stones represent. They're monuments, they're testaments to the giants whose names are etched in them. So perhaps we can say, even though we've never seen these stones, and maybe we don't even know what they are, the 12 Miluim stones, but maybe what we are told about them, it's not just academic, maybe these stones and what we know about them, maybe they can contain lessons for us. All of us are trying to build our own legacy. We're trying to etch our own name in stone, so to speak. Maybe these stones and everything we know about them, maybe they can provide some insight for us on how we too can etch our own legacy into stone. How we too can fulfill the mission that we were sent here to do. We're going to offer some lessons. It seems to me that perhaps there are more lessons that can be learned. But let's begin. Let's start with Rashi. Miluim stones, filler stones. You have a hole. You have a slot. There is a bracket that has 12 voids, 12 gaps that are empty. Fill them up with stones. And thus, if we're talking about these 12 stones, the best way to describe them, Rashi tells us, is Miluim stones, filler stones. Now, isn't that odd? These stones were very precious. They were very valuable. They were very expensive. The Torah finds the need to dedicate four verses to talk about the various names of these stones. These aren't lorem ipsum stones to just fill up something. They were very valuable, very expensive. Yet the Torah collectively, according to Rashi at least, calls them avne milum, filler stones. The fact that they fill the gold settings in the choshen, in the breastplate. Why would the Torah refer to these incredibly valuable, precious, expensive stones by this title? Oh, they they fill the void. We don't want to have an empty void. We don't have a slot that's not filled. Okay, let's fill it with something. You know, filler stones sounds like those little popcorn foam things that uh, you would put with a fragile cargo so it shouldn't get broken. That's not what these things are. Multi-million dollar gems. Hope Diamond. Exquisite, expensive, valuable, precious, cherished. That's not what it's called. It's called filler stones. And that, of course, is a bit of a head-scratcher. But maybe there's a powerful lesson. And I heard this idea many years ago. This idea is attributed to Rabbi Birnbaum, who was the head, the Rosh Yeshiva of the famed Mir Yeshiva, not the one in Jerusalem, but the one in New York, in Brooklyn. 
he said that there's a valuable lesson here. The most notable, the most glorious aspect of a job is the job that needs to get done, is the void that needs to be filled. It's the gap that needs to be plugged. These stones were dazzling, were expensive, were brilliant and shiny. And of course, that's important. But even more important than that is the fact that they filled the empty slots in the choshen, in the breastplates, brackets. They did what needed to get done. The true value of a stone, the true legacy that a person builds, creates in a lifetime, the true etching of a person's name for eternity, it's what voids did they fill? What needs did they remedy? And even the most glorious and exceptional and exquisite and expensive stone, its true greatness, its ultimate greatness, is more defined by the fact that it filled a need. If you think about it, a person's true legacy is doing what the Almighty created them to do. Filling the role that the Almighty prepared for them. We talk about this idea, of course, a lot on the Parsha podcast. Every one of us are indispensable. And how do we know that? Because the mind does not create things that are extra, that are unnecessary. How old are you? Pardon me asking. Well, I'm 36 years old. And I remember hearing something so wonderful. Take the age that that you are, and you could confidently make the following statement. 36 years ago, or X number of years ago, 21 plus, 39 plus, whatever it is. When you were born, the Almighty made a determination that the world cannot continue without you. It cannot endure, it cannot perpetuate if you're not around. This is an incredibly empowering thought. You are indispensable. The world is not complete without you. And the reason for this, of course, we know. We know the reason. There's something that the Almighty created you to do. There's something that the Almighty wants of you. There's a role that has your name in it. And this role is tailored for you. It's something that only you can fulfill. The Almighty doesn't want another Abraham. He already has an Abraham. The role that Abraham needed to do was done. But the role that you were created to do, well, that is your responsibility. And the greatest praise that a person can be praised with is that they fulfilled the role that the Almighty prepared for them. Filling the role that was set for you, that is the greatest legacy that a person can have. Of course, we tend to gravitate to the more glamorous fields, roles, jobs, etc. Those stones and how shiny and sparkly they are, that gets all the attention. But here we see a lesson. What matters even more than that? What matters even more than the stone? 
is the filling of the role. And the most consequential thing that you can do, the way to etch your legacy in stone, is by filling the void that was prepared specifically for you to fill. Rambam tells us, we've mentioned this in the past, but you have to repeat this maybe every day. Every single person in the world can be as great as Moshe. And the reason for this is because we're judged in relative terms. Moshe had an enormous responsibility. Your mission? Extract the Jews from Egypt. Ascend to heaven and get the Torah. But spend 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking. Be in constant communication with the Almighty. Obviously, this is just a shortened version of what Moshe had to do. But this is a mission that we cannot even dream of trying to do. Moshe had a mission. We also have a mission. How is a person judged? Did you fill the role? Did you do it with the same amount of perfection, devotion, commitment that Moshe did? If the answer is yes, even though your stone is not as sparkly and your void they need to fill is not as big, and of course his role is greater than anyone else in history, maybe Messiah will have a bigger role because what Moshe did to just the Jews, Messiah has to do with the whole world. But if you fulfilled, if you executed your responsibility the same way Moshe did his, in a certain sense, on a certain level, in a certain dimension, in the sense that really matters the most, you are like him. Perhaps this idea can answer also one of the Ramban's questions. The Ramban says, wait, if, if Miluim means filler stones, well, that could equally be applied to the Shoham stones. They too filled up the brackets. Perhaps, according to Rashi, the Shoham stones should also be called Miluim stones. Maybe this is the answer. On the two Shoham stones were six names apiece. The Shoham stones don't represent every individual's responsibility. It represents the nation as a whole. Both stones were the same on either side. A Shoham stone on the right and on the left shoulder, respectively. But the Miluim stones were all a different color, a different type of stone. And that was representative of the different roles that each tribe and each head of the tribe and each, of course, individual on a more granular level, the role that each individual has to play. And with regards to your unique contribution and the unique mission that you were set out to accomplish, the greatest legacy that you can fulfill, that is symbolized by the Malum Stones and by the roles that you get to fill. I think if we study this, as I mentioned at the top, there are perhaps a, a lot of lessons that we can learn But the Ramban notes that according to Rashi, these very precious and valuable and expensive stones, you only saw them in a two-dimensional way. They were flush with the gold. They were not protruding. 
And Ramban wonders, why would that be the case? Does it make sense to take a beautiful stone and to hide it? Maybe we can speculate that this too is part of building your legacy. The Almighty wants three things of us, we're told. And one of them is Hatzneyalech has to walk modestly before God. And what that means is that we don't need to publicize our accomplishments. The role that you fulfill, the mission that you undertake, the job, the task that the Almighty gives you and you do dutifully, there's no need to promote that. Fill your role and you don't have to completely cover it over, of course, but maybe it should be a little bit inlaid, so to speak. It should be a little hidden from others. They don't need to see it. Perhaps it's inappropriate for us to try to seek honor in this world for our accomplishments. Our sages tell us that if a person seeks honor in this world for their accomplishments, they may, in fact, exhaust their eternal reward. So maybe if our thesis is correct, and these stones are symbolic of the the legacy of the mission that we're trying to build, of the name we're trying to etch for ourselves for eternity, maybe that would explain why it's appropriate to submerge these stones to keep the accomplishments as hidden as possible. Now, Ramban, he has a different definition of miluim, natural stones, he calls them, complete stones, unchipped, unhewn stones. Maybe we can speculate, maybe we can suggest that this too can be a lesson for us in our pursuit of our own legacy, of our own mission. Each one of us comes to the world, and we're all different. Just as their faces are different, their personalities are different. No two souls, we're told, are alike. No two experiences at Sinai were the same. Each one of the 600,000 had their own unique, tailored, bespoke experience. And we're all talented in different ways. Everyone's talents and skills and the background and the circumstances of their life are all different. Rabban's telling us that these stones have to be in their natural state. Perhaps a lesson can be extended from this principle. Our mission has to be commensurate and congruent with who we actually are, with our innate selves. The void that we're trying to fill, the mission that the Almighty prepared for us, it's going to match the kinds of tools and the circumstance in which we were placed. And the end result of our mission should be congruent with our natural qualities. We don't believe in taking your personality and taking the qualities that you were born with and your own individuality and rejecting that. That's not what we believe. Quite the contrary. Those qualities and your temperament and your personality, what makes you unique, your unique attributes and skills and traits, all that was given to you specifically because that can be directed towards fulfilling 
that goal, that void that we're, we're created to fill. We don't fulfill our mission by repudiating our uniqueness. Oh no, it's the opposite. We do it by channeling said uniqueness. When my grandfather arrived at the Mir Yeshiva, not in Israel, not in New York, but in Poland in 1934, the great luminary leader of the Mir Yeshiva, Rabbi Rucham, he was having a conversation with some of his close students about what do we do with this Walby character, which I gather was uh, discussed about uh, many Walbies throughout history. What do we do with this Walby? Uh, for a variety of reasons. It could be for good reasons or for less good reasons. So the students told Rabbi Rucham, there's only one way to take this Walby character and turn him into a great person. We have to take his German punctiliousness and meticulousness and we have to shatter it. He's way too punctilious and so meticulous. We have to break that. And when we break that, we can build something spectacular atop the runes of his personality. And Rabbi Rucham said, no, no, you have it exactly opposite. We don't take his German punctiliousness and shatter it. This is exactly what we built upon. My grandfather was exceedingly meticulous and precise. We have notebooks of all the lectures, all the essays that he wrote by hand. And you could scroll through, you could flip through hundreds of pages. And he writes these incredible, exquisite essays. And he was so well thought out so well organized in his mind, there's nothing crossed out. It's an unbelievable thing. He built himself. He built, developed himself. He filled the void, so to speak, in a way that was matching, that was fitting to the natural state that he was brought to this world in. The Rabban tells us that milua means complete, natural. You can't chip away at that stone. Perhaps this is yet another lesson for us. How, in fact, do you etch your name in stone? How, in fact, do you build your eternal legacy? You do it in a way that does not detract from that stone. You can't hew at that stone, chip away at it, etch it, chisel away at it. The stone that they might gave you That's the stone in which you need to imprint your name. But the way you fulfill your mission, it's not by detracting from that stone. It's not by repudiating what makes you, you, what makes you special and different. It's by taking it and channeling it and finding a way to imprint your name within the stone without chiseling away at it, without removing it. So we haven't, of course, seen any of the vestments of the Kohen Gadol. We've never seen the tabernacle, at least not in this lifetime. We've never witnessed, as of this recording, 
We have witnessed the, the temple. We hope, of course, and pray for the restoration of the temple speedily in our days. But perhaps the stones of the Choshen, of the breastplate, and of the ephod can still be illuminative for us in our own pursuit of greatness. We end off, of course, the Parsha podcast with a question, a question that hopefully enhances our Parsha IQ, but also other areas of life. Because after all, there's only one thing in the world that can elevate a person's intelligence. And that's the Torah. So we like to start off with an idea, call it the I, and then a question or any other thing that starts with a Q, and thereby we raise our IQ here week after week. In the second verse of our Parsha, we read about the fundraising drive. It's called Teruma, Truma, which is, of course, the name of the Parsha. But if you read verses 2 and 3, you see that the word Truma appears three times. Daber al Israel, speak to the children of Israel, v'yitchuli truma, and they should take a truma. Every person whose heart is inspired, tichuis truma si, take my truma. Vizos truma, this is the truma you should take from them, gold, silver, etc. So Rashi notes that the word truma appears three times, because there are three different things that you fundraise for. Every Jew gave a coin, and that was used to make the silver sockets that went on the bottom of the beams that were the walls of the tabernacle. And that was one truma. Everyone had to give. Bekala gulgolas. And there was a second truma. And that was the half shekel. Everyone had to give a half shekel for the ongoing expenses, for the operating budget of the temple, for the sacrifices. And then there was a third truma, a third fundraising drive. And that, every person gave what they wanted. It was optional. Whatever your heart inspired you to give. And those were all the various different ingredients materials of the tabernacle. So there are a few questions here. You read that Rashi, and Rashi ends off with a very interesting curiosity. After he talks about the three different trumas, he says, oh, and if you count the things, you'll notice that there are 13 different materials. There are 13 materials that are needed for the Mishkan for the tabernacle and the priestly garments. Here's the problem. Question number one, we'll call it. The math is off. You count it. There are, in fact, 15 different items, not 13. Question number one. What an interesting Rashi. Rashi says, oh, if you actually count them, there are 15. Now, we could count them. Zahav, Kasef, Nehoshes. Gold, silver, and copper. And then it lists it. You count them. It's, it's 15. It's not 13. Question number one. Question number two, the fundraising that's mentioned over here, is only the third type of truma. It's not 
for the silver sockets. It's not that everyone had to give. It's not for the fundraising of the operational expenses. It's just one of them. Yet, somehow, it starts off with the three trumas. So why would it mention the three trumas if only one of them is being featured over here? And finally, the third question, and that relates to the word truma. The word truma has another meaning. When you, in the land of Israel, you receive a yield, there are various tithes you have to give. And the Kohanic tithe is called truma. A 50th or 2% is given to the Kohen. It seems really odd that the name, the word, for the contributions towards the Mishkan, both the voluntary and the obligatory, and the operational budget, that word truma, it shares the name with the Kohanic tithing. What is the connection? So we don't have one question. We have three questions. Maybe we got a little extra here because it's, after all, fundraising week here, both in the parasha and at Torch. I'm thinking about these questions. Maybe we come up with answers. We'll enhance our Parsha intelligence. And for the last time in the Parsha podcast in 2023, I want to let you know, we're still doing our fundraiser for another couple of days. The website is givetorch.org. Every donation is still doubled. Visit the website, givetorch.org. Thank you so much for your friendship and your kind listenership and your wonderful support and generosity. I'm the luckiest man in the world. I get to do this. Sit in the Torch Center, study the Parsha with you all together. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Have an incredible day. Have a wonderful rest of your week and an incredibly uplifting, inspirational, meaningful, purposeful, restful, quiescent, which is one of the new words that we added. Quiescent Shabbos. Upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Oh, and the website. Oh, one more time. Givetorch.org for the fundraiser. I'll see you next week. Please, God.